it's great to get feedback from other friends and family, other aspiring authors, or other people who know something about the subject matter, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, it's really important to get support from others because it's really hard to write a book. Write the world-changing book that will help grow your personal brand and your business as it makes the world a better place. Welcome to the Author's Corner, hosted by Robin Colucci. Every episode, we bring you some of the most successful authors, as well as other industry experts, to share some inspiration, motivation, tactical strategy, and fun. We'll also talk about the challenges and trends in the publishing industry. Don't get stuck in the idea phase. Join the Author's Corner today. Start writing the book you've dreamed about. Hello, and welcome to the Author's Corner. I'm your host, Robin Pellucci, and today I'm happy to introduce you to Alexandra Shapiro. Now, Alexandra is a criminal defense lawyer and one of the leading appellate lawyers in the United States. And she was even Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's first clerks on the U.S. Supreme Court, which is so cool. Anyway, she served as a federal prosecutor in Manhattan and later founded an elite litigation boutique firm, which handles many high-profile cases. Now, obviously, we're not here specifically to talk about Alexandra's legal career. But in early 2021, Alexandra embarked on a new journey of writing fiction. And her whole drive behind writing her novel, Presumed Guilty, was that she wanted to raise awareness about problems, real-life problems with the criminal justice system, and how sometimes even innocent people can be unfairly prosecuted right here in the United States. So Alexandra is going to talk with us today about that intersection between reality and fiction, and how Alexandra used her real-life experience to inform her novel, Presumed Guilty. And she's got a lot of wonderful insights to share with you about the process and some of the challenges, as well as wonderful wins that occurred in her journey. So I encourage you to sit back and enjoy. And let's go talk to Alexandra. Alexandra, welcome to the Author's Corner. Thanks so much, Robin. I really appreciate your having me and it's great to be on the show. Yeah, it's so great to have you. You know, it's interesting. We've had several clients over the years who've been attorneys who've wanted to write books. Often, I don't know if we've had anybody yet who wanted to write a novel. (laughs) (laughs) But as I was looking at your background, and obviously there's some overlap with, you know, writing about criminal justice and having to defend yourself against charges. And obviously, in your previous role, are you still a practicing attorney in? Yes. Are, are you retired? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I have a full-time legal practice, and I do a lot of criminal defense work, mostly in the white-collar space. Great. And so, I'd love to hear, I have a lot of questions, but the one that's coming to me that wants to be asked first is, whatever gave you the idea to write a novel? Yeah. So, I had actually originally been thinking about writing a nonfiction book. And over the years, you know, I was, I started out my career after my clerkships as a prosecutor. And then 
for the last, I guess now at this point, about 22 years, I've been a defense lawyer. And over the years, particularly during my time as a defense lawyer, I've seen how sometimes, you know, unjust results can happen, even for the most defendants that have a lot of resources, have the best lawyers available. And there are just a lot of things about the way the system works and the way it's designed that are more unfair than people imagine, given all the constitutional protections we have in our system. And I had a, you know, I'm often doing appeals where some other lawyer has tried a case and the defendant has been convicted. And I've had a lot of success getting convictions overturned, but I had a particular case that I did not prevail in. And I really thought the defendant was completely innocent, that he was someone who was really just doing his job and had been unfairly targeted by the government that claimed something he did was fraud. And I originally wanted to tell that story. However, the case was very complex, involved a very complex foreign exchange transaction. And I really had ambitions about a broader message that could reach more people. And I thought, you know, some of the details of the case might put people to sleep. And also, there's just a lot more creative license one has with a novel. And, you know, I talked to a couple of people who've written books about my idea. And one of them said, you know, why don't you try a novel? And I've always like sort of maybe like a lot of people fantasized about the idea of writing fiction. Haven't really done it since high school or whatever, but I thought that was a great idea and would be a fun challenge. And it would just give me more license to kind of, in some way, simplify things. And also, sometimes it's, I think you can get a message across in a way more by telling a story and showing people how it, for instance, in this case, you know, how does this affect the family and things like that. And it's better to just do it by telling a story and creating dialogue and not, you know, rather than just describing it. Um, I think it's just more interesting. So that's how it came about. So the story is based on an actual case, but obviously details changed or or did you just go off and running after that? And No, the, the story is totally fictional. What I would say is that the story involves the prosecution of a woman named Emma Simpson, who's a hedge fund manager. And the case starts out as an investigation into her fund and whether they were involved in insider trading. And the government, you know, doesn't develop enough evidence about that. So they end up charging her with obstruction of justice based on this email she wrote which in reality was perfectly innocent, but looked to the government like she was trying to get people to hide documents that they were trying to get in the investigation. And so it's not based on a real case, but that kind of thing happens a lot. There are many famous cases, you know, where something that starts as an investigation of sort of a substantive crime, the government you know, they basically, they can't prove it. Either they're just wrong or they just don't have the evidence. And, but people sometimes do stupid things. And there's sort of a famous saying, I think it became popularized around the time of Watergate, that it's not the crime, it's the cover up. And so it's kind of a common story, but it's totally made up. The characters are all made up. And but what I tried to do is just use a lot of different real life experiences about how the different players in the system work, whether it's different prosecutors or judges or defense lawyers or clients and their families, like kind of try to make it realistic in terms of the kinds of things that do really happen in real life, whether it's in the courtroom or behind the scenes. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's very interesting. And what was it like for you writing the made up? So was this the first novel you've ever written? Yeah, it was really interesting. First of all, it was a bit challenging to find the time. I was mostly writing at night and on the weekends. And I do a lot of writing in my legal job because I do a lot of brief writing, but it's obviously very different. It's sort of analytical writing. And this is creative writing. And what I found was that, and I'm sure different fiction writers have different approaches, but I kind of started by with a general idea about what where the story was going to go and with sort of making some outlines to think about who the characters were going to be and what were going to be some of their traits. But then I really wrote it in scenes. And I one of the things that I found really interesting was sometimes, you know, I felt like I didn't think out exactly what was going to happen in the scene and different ideas would come to me as I was writing it. And it's sort of almost took on a life of its own as I was writing dialogue. I get a different idea about something to add in terms of the plot. And so I really enjoyed that. The other thing I really enjoyed about it was I had a, what's called a development editor, you know, Mm -hmm. who um, helps you as you go along. And that was great for me because as like many attorneys, I'm kind of a deadline writer and having this person, you know, I would meet with her about once a week and it just forced me to write, you know, two or three scenes because I had to give her material. Otherwise, there'd be no point to our meeting. So right. that was really helpful. And she gave me great feedback and, you know, various sort of writing tools and ideas that I hadn't really thought about that are really helpful for fiction writing. Mm-hmm. It is significantly different than brief writing. So what would you say was your biggest challenge in out of all the different things you have to write when you're, you know, you're writing, you have to set up scenes, you have to do dialogue, you've got to pull this plot line all the way through. What did you find to be the most challenging? I guess one of the things at first that I probably should have realized because I've read a lot of fiction, but I hadn't really thought about is the way in which effective fiction really, you know, as the editor would say, you have to show, not tell. So, you you know, dialogue a lot in particular, but other things and try not to explain things too much to the reader. Try to just tell the story in a way that the reader will infer what you're trying to communicate. And so that was really interesting. And hopefully by the end of it, after all the edits that I succeeded at that, but that was one of the things that was probably most challenging to me coming from a completely different type of writing. Right. And legal writing is really a lot of it's just just the facts, ma'am. You know, tell us what happened. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, one similarity, and I do a lot of appellate briefs, and appellate briefs mm-hmm. will have typically kind of a statement of the facts, and then you have argument that's more about the law and how it applies to those facts. But I've always believed that the most effective briefs are ones that tell a really a good story in the facts section, obviously consistent with whatever's in the record, but I always think that your goal as a lawyer in an appellate brief in particular, but as you know, you want to convince the judge or her clerks, you know, whoever's reading the brief by the end of the facts that, gee, you know, in my case, since I'm usually asking to overturn a conviction, an injustice has occurred and I ought to find some legal way to correct it. And then, you know, so I think part of that, there's an art to brief writing in a way that also involves telling a compelling story. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of helpful, even though it's, you know, a totally different writing style. You're obviously not making things up. (laughs) As I'm listening, and I haven't really read many legal briefs, but as I'm listening, I'm getting the sense that 
that there's an element of like humanizing the defendant. Is that part of what you're talking about as far as crafting that narrative to get them to consider or reconsider? A little bit. It kind of depends on the particular, you know, case and what the issues are. And, you know, because the government in a criminal case, obviously, will try to make the defendant look really bad. And hopefully the hand you're dealt is that they're stretching things and they're exaggerating. You know, sometimes they're not. (laughs) And that's challenging if you have kind of a procedural argument, even if you think it's a good one, if you think it's hard that the government really had a lot of evidence that the person committed the crime. And it's more challenging. But a lot of times in white collar cases, particularly ones that go to trial and don't result in guilty pleas, there are we're operating everybody's operating in a gray area. And so you can, you know, try to do your best to show that, like, for instance, in the case of the case I was telling you about that sort of was my original idea for the book when I was thinking about a nonfiction was to really, you know, kind of show that what he was doing was really standard in the industry. And he was kind of just doing his job and kind of painting a picture that there's no way he would have thought he was committing wire fraud when he was engaged in certain negotiations that led to the charges. Right. So very cool. So I've been trying to hold myself back, but I can't wait any longer. I'd love to hear about your, you know what I'm going to say. I know what you're going to (laughs) say. But your clerkship with RBG, (laughs) our great hero, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Gosh, I would love to know, is there something that stands out to you from that experience, like in particular, something you learned from her that, you know, that particularly has impacted you or influenced you? I mean, I would say there probably isn't one thing, but it was a great experience, obviously. And I clerked for her at a unique time because it was her first year on the Supreme Court. So she had been a judge for about 12 or 13 years on the the D.C. Circuit, the court, an intermediate appellate court. And um, but the Supreme Court during my year was kind of new to her. And it's a little the process is different, et cetera. And so that was really interesting. And it was a, kind of a different time. It was well before she was kind of a pop culture icon in right, yes. <laughs> years leading up to. So, but she was a fantastic boss. I mean, I would say, you know, one thing, and people don't really focus on this as much, but as a, a law clerk, what was really great was that on the one hand, she was a tremendously real human being. Like she cared about her clerk's personal lives. She and her husband, who was a, you know, this is well known, was a fantastic cook. I don't think RBG even knew how to scramble an egg, but <laughs> her was a great cook. And they would have us over to dinner. Marty would, as he was known, would cook, or they lo- both loved the opera. We got to go to the opera once with her. And so when I got married a few years after the clerkship, and when I had my first child, and she did this actually with the other children as well, and I think she does this with all her clerks, she would send a little t-shirt with the Supreme Court symbols that said, you know, grand clerk, (laughs) or something like that. So, you know, she really cared about, but in terms of the work, she was brilliant and really demanded you know, the top quality in terms of your analysis, the rigor of it, your precision in your writing. And that was just great to really work for someone like that. And I guess one other thing that I would just mention that may mean a little more to lawyers than anyone else, but often if you're a litigator and you lose a case, sometimes you feel like you read the decision and you just don't even feel like 
the judge is explaining that they took your argument seriously and why you lost. And she was really impressed upon us to how important it is for the process and the kind of integrity and the respect for the court and the legitimacy of the court that in a judicial opinion, you really have to grapple with the arguments of the losing side and explain why you didn't agree with them. And I thought that's a really important thing for the integrity of the rule of law and the credibility of courts and you know, their acceptance by the public. So I always like to talk about that when people ask me about RBG. Yeah, that I can see because if you just sort of are hand wavy about it, then it doesn't, there's no legitimacy really to the ruling. It just seems arbitrary. Yeah. It may still seem arbitrary, but if there's at least an attempt. (laughs) Right. No, exactly. I mean, that's the thing. At least you feel like, well, they listened. I may not agree with the result, but at least there's some sense that the court grappled with your argument and paid attention to it. And unfortunately, all too often in judicial decisions, you don't really get that. So, yeah. And so then you went on from there to be on the prosecutorial side. Yeah, I was a federal prosecutor here in Manhattan in the Southern District of New York for about five years. And I actually, I did a number of, worked on a number of different types of cases, but probably spent a good chunk of my time after the first couple of years doing violent gang cases, believe it or not. And then my last year there, I was in the appeals unit, and then I went into private practice. And so what precipitated your switch over to defense, to being a defense attorney? Yeah, so it's fairly common, particularly in that office, for people to do that at some point. And I think I had gotten to a point where I felt I had learned a lot about you know, investigating and trying cases. And if I was going to stay, I think I probably would have ended up doing more white collar work. I didn't do that much white collar work as a prosecutor and going to the securities unit. And when I sort of looked at the types of cases they did, I felt that this is an oversimplification, of course, but they fit into a couple of different categories. There were certain types of cases where, you know, there's real obvious crime going on, like, you know, kind of, pump and dump schemes and Ponzi schemes and things like that, where bad people are taking advantage of vulnerable people, scammers. And I felt that there wasn't that much for me to learn in doing those kinds of cases because I had already done a lot of prosecutorial work, et cetera. And I was, you know, sort of ready for another challenge. But the more complex and more challenging cases they did often are in these gray areas that I mentioned. And I really just felt at a certain point that I would be a little more comfortable on the defense side and trying my hand at that in those types of cases, because I'm, you know, a little bit of a libertarian in a way on at least in that regard. And so that was the main thing that, you know, precipitated my decision. I had never actually worked at a law firm other than as a summer associate during law school. And so was just sort of eager to learn a little bit about the business of law. And and again, I, you know, I hope to do some defense work on the white collar side and learn more about uh, different areas of the law, like securities law and things like that. Cool. So tell us more about the heroine of your book. Yeah. So her name is Emma Simpson and she's unusual. And I, I do a lot of work with clients in the financial industry and cases involving all different kinds of, you know, people in the financial industry and companies. And I'm sure this won't come as any surprise to you or your listeners, but there aren't that many women who rise to the top in big banks or in hedge funds or private equity firms. And so 
I just thought, you know, on a little twist that it would be cool to have a woman character who had managed to overcome kind of the glass ceiling or the odds against that and succeeded in the industry. So she's in her mid 40s and has worked at this place for a number of years. And she is married and has two children who are teenagers, a boy and a girl. And she works in New York City, but a few years before the book takes place, she and her husband moved up to the Hudson Valley, which is, she has sort so she has a really long commute, but her kids and her husband, who is now running, trying to start up a wine business, they live on this farm in a place called Red Hook, New York in Dutchess County, which I'm familiar with because I, when my kids were younger, we had a house and we used to go out there on the weekends and I liked that community. And it was just a little bit fun for me to recreate some of those places. And she takes the train in every day. And uh, what happens is on the day of the quote unquote alleged crime is that she goes into her office on her usual routine and she has this meeting with her staff and her colleagues. And they discuss a little bit, some different things, including there's mention that there was a subpoena to their Boston office. And then there's also some dis- mention of the fact that they're having a computer upgrade. And after the meeting, another colleague sends an email saying, hey, because of the computer upgrade, we should follow our company's what they call document retention policy and like sort of make sure you're throwing out old stuff that you're supposed to under our policy. And then she looks at that and then has some other meetings. And then on her train ride home, she just forwards it and kind of underscores his message. Mm-hmm. And that becomes the basis for this charge <laughs> that she, wow. you know, the, the prosecutors say she was doing this because she knew about the subpoena and she hoped that people would destroy documents that could be incriminating that were responsive to the subpoena. So that's kind of the, yeah. Bad timing. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> All right, so... I have to confess, I have not read the novel, but I got to ask you this. Who's her lawyer? So her lawyer is a guy (laughs) who is a former public defender. His name's Will Shelby, and he lives in Manhattan. And he's married to a person who just left the U.S. Attorney's Office as a former prosecutor. He himself has never been a former prosecutor, but he's very well credentialed. You know, he went to Yale and does a lot of defense work. He works at a small law firm. He's African-American and he's known as a great courtroom lawyer and someone who really fights. So that's who he is. Very cool. Now, was he modeled after anyone or? No one in particular. There's some details that some people might say match a certain lawyer in my family but <laughs> but he's really, he's really made up i mean the yeah, he's really made up. yeah i mean through all like i said all the characters are fictional there's little like the places and there's some one of the things i tried to do i don't know how effective this is but i tried to have pretty descriptive passages that really hopefully help the reader just see in their minds like what's going on in terms of my visual descriptions. And so there's a lot of references to real places that are, you know, true, but the characters are really, I may have gotten an idea here or there from this person or that, but the it's really all, they're fictional. There isn't really any character that I can say is a lot like a real person that I know. 
Yeah. I think often, though, that characters are slightly influenced by the people around us, even if it's unconscious, you know, even if we're not always aware of what we do think. And not not every character either. Yeah. But sometimes you can see those that crossover. Yeah, no, I'm sure that's true. And hopefully, if I've done a decent job of creating realistic characters, I mean, I'm sure inevitably some of the dialogue and other aspects must be informed by my experience. Because I think, yeah. you know, if there weren't, it probably wouldn't be told very well. Right. So, everyone I know who's ever written a novel has hit a, a wall at some point, usually in somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a phrase about writing there's a saying about writing through the middle because that can be kind of the thickest of the forest do you recall a moment like that and if so tell us about it yeah so i definitely did experience that a little bit i think when i got started i had a fair amount of momentum and you know the way the book is structured is i mean roughly speaking is that probably the first half is kind of that day i described that ends up becoming the basis for the charges and then kind of the investigation from the point of view of the prosecutors. And like it sort of goes back and forth from perspective, but it's basically the first half of the book is about the events and the investigation. And the second half is about the trial. And I think I had a good amount of momentum going through the parts where I was writing the investigation. I didn't actually write them all in order. I started kind of writing in order more later when I got to the trial. But I think when I first started writing about the trial, I probably hit is probably about where I would say I started feeling like there was, you know, this was just, was I really going to be able to do this? And how was I going to do it? Because one of the bigger challenges about the trial section, as opposed to the earlier part, is that, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in a trial that's very boring. And Part of my goal was not at all to be boring, but to capture some real things and educate the reader a little bit about some actual rules that are just structured in a way that's very unfair to defendants. But I didn't want to do it in a way that would put him to sleep. So one of the things that was very challenging was figuring out how to present trial scenes that would be compelling and realistic, but also kind of leave out a lot of sort of boring details that would actually happen in a courtroom, but still get the right. thing across, you know, so and avoid repetition. So there's a lot of repetition in a trial. So for instance, I have the book has the opening statements or which are much shorter and probably less complex than a real opening statement, even in a fairly simple trial like this. But I didn't include the closing statements. You know, I just sort of skipped from some stuff at the end of the trial to the jury deliberations because I just thought it's just going to be repetitive. And I had similar challenges with some of the witness testimonies, sort of how to capture that in a compelling way that showed some of the things that can be frustrating, you know, when the judge keeps ruling against you, but without slowing down the pace, really, especially because it's meant to be a, a thriller and hopefully to engage the reader who doesn't at a certain point, hopefully does much just wants to keep reading. So I did, you know, kind of come to that point and I don't know, I can't really even tell you exactly how I worked through it, but somehow I did. And then I got, got some more momentum once I kind of got past that. And, but I'm sure that happens every time anyone writes a book, even the most experienced book writer or novelist, I would imagine. 
Yeah, I think that sticky point shows up at some point. Now, did you ever feel like quitting? Like how bad did it get? <laughs> um, I don't think I did. Yeah, I also got a little frustrated and sort of thought, well, maybe this is no good. After I'd written like a rough first draft and I sent it out to a couple of what we were calling beta readers, you know, just yeah. to get reactions and... They actually had really helpful suggestions that I think I ended up making the book a lot better. But, you know, it was constructive criticism and, and made me wonder, like, are these characters compelling? And, yeah. you know, is this really any good? Do I have any idea what I'm doing? <laughs> and, you know, fortunately, there was some positive feedback as well. And so, I, right. <laughs> you know, and now I've written, at least written a, a whole first draft. Like, I've just got to go take the time and work with then it was a second set of editors to beef this up and kind of respond to some of the ideas and comments and feedback and make the book better. But yeah, I don't think I ever like wanted to give it up because I just felt like I'd put so much time and effort into it. I had told a bunch of people I was doing it. So I think oh, that, there helped. You go. that helps. <laughs> I didn't want you know anyone to think I had given up. So right, right, yeah, I, I'll say one other just funny anecdote is I, even though He's wonderful and I love him very much. I think my husband didn't think I was really going to do it when I said, I'm going to write this book. And he's a criminal defense lawyer as well. And I think was a little paranoid that if it was too realistic or people thought I was writing about them, it could be a problem. And but I think he just thought, oh, sh this is just her fantasy. And so then he was like kind of surprised that I actually <laughs> I was glad I convinced him. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. It's so interesting. I think a lot of times the people closest to us are the most, you know, suspect as far as like, well, I don't like, are you really going to do that? <laughs> you know, I think yeah. that that's because it's just a new way of seeing you. Yeah. So exactly. Yeah. I just think it's so important to share with people like our listeners that, you know, some of these things that show up because it's so normal. And I think that if you're not aware that anyone else has ever gone through some of these challenges of not knowing where to go next or not knowing how to write through a certain section or getting constructive feedback that's not great on the ego, but is great for the novel, you know, all of those things are not only normal, but in a way they're necessary, I think, just to the process. And so, I want to thank you on behalf of all of our listeners <laughs> for being willing to share a lot of these things because it really is not something that gets talked about all the time, but so important for aspiring authors to know. Yeah, no, definitely. And I, I would just say, I don't think anyone, no matter how skilled, you know, writes a book on their own, like mm. whether it's a really successful author that's got great editors, you know, at a, a traditional publishing company or a newbie like myself, you know, it's really important to reach it. You know, it's great if you have the opportunity to work with a development editor. And I wrote the book with the help of actually a book writing program that was uh, originally started by a professor at Georgetown. It's called the Creator Institute. And one of the great things is, in addition to the development editor, is they connect you to an author community of other folks who are writing books. And it's just great to get feedback either from other friends and family who are willing to put the time in to read, or if you can connect with other aspiring authors or, you know, other people in 
you know, who knows something about the subject matter, you know, whatever it is, depending on the, the topic of the book, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, it's really important, I think, to get feedback from others and get support from others, because it's really hard to write a book. And but I think it's a really worthwhile thing to do if you've got an idea and open a lot of doors and create lots of opportunities, even if, you know, you don't, let's say, like in my case, I don't think I'm going to become a full-time novelist, although I may write another book at some point. But, you know, it's really helped give me a different way to kind of talk about something I think is really important about the legal system that I can't really do as directly through my work. So, I'm sure that's true for many, many authors who write about something that relates to either something they know about, if it's a memoir, or something related to their work, whatever it is. Well, we are glad that you did. And I think the idea of a second novel is terrific. Any thoughts on what it might be? (laughs) Well, I've thought about a couple of different ideas. So one idea is a sequel, and I don't want to give away the end of the book, but that would be kind of a natural thing. Uh And then I've also thought about doing another sort of criminal justice book, either a legal thriller or maybe even a mystery that may use, like, there's some other characters that are a little bit more secondary in this book, and maybe in the next book, one of those characters will be the main character. There are two main prosecutors, and a lot of people have reacted to them and found that one of them is particularly interesting. She's somewhat conflicted about the case. She sticks with it and throughout, but here and there, you get the sense that She's of two minds about whether they should go forward, whether it's the right thing to do. But she's a pretty interesting character. Her name's Annie Waters. So one idea I've had is to come up with another story that's focused on her in some way. But we'll see. I have originally hoped to maybe start it over the summer, but I've been really busy. So I think <laughs> if I do another one, I probably won't be able to start it until sometime next year. It's hard to find the time to fit it in with all my work. So yeah. That is a whole other thing I hope our listeners get is that you have a full-time legal practice and you found, you carved out the time, created the time to write this novel. And it's no small feat, but it is an achievable one. So that's also a really important takeaway for today. And so I hope we see another novel from you, Alexandra, and perhaps we can see you back here on the Author's Corner. Great. Thank you so much for having me, Robin. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to another amazing episode of The Author's Corner. You're one step closer to writing the world-changing book you've dreamed about for years. To access today's show notes and other helpful resources, simply visit our website at theauthorscorner.com. A positive review would be appreciated. Until next time. 